0: It's time for JT the Brick.
1: Always always great to be with the Brick. This is how you do radio in a professional sports town and this hasn't been a professional sports town. It was just UNLV basketball for how many decades. Now you got the Raiders and you got the Golden Knights. It's big boy radio.
0: JT the Brick.
1: Hey JT, how you doing, man? My radio show's a little bit more intense. It gets a little bit more crazy. It gets a little bit more emotional. It's big boy radio. And now, here's JT the Brick. Welcome back. Hour number two, everybody. JT with you as we continue on. Brought to you by Modelo. It was tough to find my bucket of Modellos in Amsterdam, in Liverpool, but I saw a couple of guys with Modelo shirts on and stopped them, gave them a high five. The fighting spirit of Modelo. And my bucket of is right around the corner coming up. We're doing a lot with Modelo. A lot. Because we had a great remote with them based around the draft. They want to do more. We want to do more. So we are really excited about that. More to come as we get ready also for the summer of Cliff. We're getting ready for Cliff Branch's induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And we have special programming kicking off next week to celebrate Cliff Branch. Cliff was a dear friend of mine. Dear friend of mine. Only because... I've been lucky enough to be around this team for over 20 years, and Cliff took me in, and Cliff was someone I sat with during games and traveled with and was on the road with, and just to know Cliff Branch is a high honor of my life. And to be back in Canton, Ohio with his family this summer is going to be unbelievable. You know, my career has always been about friendships and trying to build friendships on the radio. I got great friends in my real life, but I also have mentors in broadcasting and people that I consider mentors in my life who have had a big impact. And this is a gentleman, Lou DiBella, who's the newest member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, the former executive of HBO. He's a movie producer. He's one of the great promoters in all of boxing. The Harvard grad... He's got. He comes from the streets in New York, like I do, and I get a chance now to introduce him as a Hall of Famer. Luke, congratulations on the honor. How are you,
2: JT? Thank you, bro. I mean, I got to tell you, man, it's, it, it, I'm really good. Like it, it was a incredible weekend. It was because of the three classes getting inducted together. Because of COVID, you had like the you know the greatest women ever inducted. Because it was the first time women were ever inducted. You had Floyd Mayweather, Andre Ward, James Tony. Bernard Hopkins, Roy Jones, Juan Manuel Marquez, you know, Cotto. I mean, I'm mean, i I'm missing people. Like The list I mean, it was insane. And, you know, in the midst of them, there's me wondering how I'd get here but being very grateful for being there. And um, it was an amazing weekend, but it's nice to get your roses when you're still alive.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I'm going to go backwards in a bit, but I watched your speech and what was interesting, you mentioned gratitude a bunch. You mentioned your mom and your family, your dad, your biggest hero. Did it feel like it was, this is your life? You prepare for a speech like that, you're on that stage, you look out, and those were all your heroes, as you pointed out. If it wasn't for these great boxers and your love of the sport, you wouldn't be there.
2: You know, man, I, I, I just sort of let it go up there, and, and, and um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable. And, and and these were my heroes. Like I, I, I had a Radio under my pillow, as like a ten year old kid listening to Ali, you know, and and you know, and, and there was no, there was no live radio, there was no live TV in the home, there was no pay per view in the home, there was round by round updates on AM radio, and you know that guy was my hero, and I you know back then to think like here I am like fifty years later, and you know I'm in the same Hall of f- Fame as Muhammad Ali, I mean that's you know that's like that's humbling, bro.
1: It is. Lou DeBell is our guest, longtime friend, mentor, a guy who's the heart and soul of boxing, also his success in TV and film. Lou, how did it start for you to go from Regis High School all the way to Harvard Law School? Tell our listeners, take us behind the scenes, the journey. What was some of those forks in the road that you took, and if you didn't take it, you wouldn't have the life you have today? You
2: know, the forks in the road really didn't ha- happen with school. Like I was always good at school, and The Forks in the Road sort of happened, like, later when... I I really never wanted to be a lawyer. I never wanted to go to law school. I went to law school, though, because I knew I was a kid from Brooklyn. My family wasn't rich. You know, I had a a heavy Brooklyn accent, and I was a regular guy. And I knew that Harvard, like, law school, particularly if I can get into a top one, would, like, give me some legitimacy. So I went to Harvard Law School not wanting to be a lawyer, but knowing that I wanted to get into sports and entertainment. And then, you know... Go four years later after law school, I'm at a law firm, I'm miserable, I'm making a lot of money, I'm working with great people, I'm learning stuff, but I I wanted to be involved in the entertainment business, and I really, really wanted to be involved in sports, and I wasn't there, so I, I, I sort of started hustling and hitting the streets and trying to interview for whatever I could find in the world of sports, and I almost got a job with the New York Yankees. And in the last day of interviews, I was supposed to interview with George Steinbrenner, and he saw my resume, and he saw my age, and he's like, I'm not going to hire a kid in his 20s to be general counsel of the New York Yankees. So, like, he tells the secretary the day of my interview to cancel the interview. So the lady's a nice lady. She calls me, and she hears me pick up the phone. I'm like, gonna, I'm, like I'm dying. I'm, like, crestfallen. And, and she's like, look, I mean, he liked your resume. He thought you were impressive, but he thinks you're a kid. So I don't know if this helps you, but I think the guy who's going to get the job was also offered a job to be... The general counsel of HBO Sports, and as soon as she said HBO Sports, I started seeing, you know, you know, H- Hagler, Hearns in my head, and mm-hmm. HBO and Seth Abraham, and I was a big boxing fan. I knew what was going on at HBO in those days. HBO was big time boxing back then, you know. So I ran to the HBO building on a Friday, like I was supposed to go to the Yankees that day. I, re- I snuck past security. I got up to Seth's office. That was Friday afternoon, and Monday morning they gave me a job offer. And that's
1: changed my life. Lou DiBella is our guest. Boxing Hall of Famer now added to his resume. So your tenure as Senior Vice President of HBO Sports, it's incredible run. That's when I got to know you, putting on the biggest fights in the world. There was nothing like an HBO Sports venture, let alone a fight. And as you said in your speech, when boxing's at its best – it's the best. People ask me all the time, Lou, I've been to Super Bowls, Final Fours. I say, stop. If you've ever been to a boxing match, a heavyweight title, one of the great fights you could go to, and they hit it perfect that night, there is nothing like the energy of a big fight. How did you see that when you came into the industry, and how did you make it better at HBO?
2: You know, I, I, I think it's always been about the a couple of things competitiveness, people giving 100% of, of, of who they are and what they are. It's not always the best athlete that wins. There are all sorts of intangibles, intelligence, heart, the ability to take pain, you know, the science of not being hit. Like there's so many aspects of it. It's the most relatable sport because everybody fights, right? So it's very easy to figure out people fighting if you're watching a sport. It's not all sorts of rules. It's two people fighting within certain parameters. And, and that's the most relatable thing on earth. So... In my mind, when I was a TV executive, there were stars, there are big stars. you want to see them in competitive fights. If you don't want to see a big occasionally a big star performing in a particular place or for a particular reason, it's fine, even if the opposition's not necessarily threatening. but the big stars also need to fight big, big fights. You need to, the best need to fight the best. And then you need to develop fighters and you need to figure out who are the real stars. How do you do that? You make 50/50 fights. and that was the secret. In the '90s, of boxing after dark, don't you're going to build stars because you're going to see fighters who are extraordinary, but but you don't have to know that fighter the first time he appears on TV. Make a great matchup. This is boxing after dark created. Barrera and Morales and McKinney mm-hmm. created. Kevin Kelly created. Arturo Gatti created. Angel Manfredi. There were loads of fighters who made their careers. They were unknowns, that they fought wars in a series that was designed to give people wars. So I think that, like, you know, a a lot of it is creating good content. You know, giving people the kind of fight they want to see. And, um, you know, I think that's the secret to it.
1: Boxing Hall of Famer Lou DiBella joins us. So when I talk to Bob Arum or other promoters over the years, and knowing you as long as I have, I always get frustrated when great promoters can't make great fights, when we have to wait For Bud Crawford to fight or to wait to see a matchup that we want to see. Take our listeners behind the scenes. How difficult is it to make a great fight? If both parties have differing cable contracts from Showtime to HBO and some of those negotiations that you've been in, you you might be the sharpest guy in the room, but it's difficult to make the fight.
2: Yeah, but I want to say something. The universe has changed and it's Mm -hmm. made it harder than ever to make fights. You know, when I was at HBO as an executive and even for most of the year, you know, a number of years after I left HBO and I became a promoter, HBO never engaged in in exclusive deals with promoters. They might make exclusive deals with a particular fighter, but but they made exclusive deals with fighters by paying extraordinary amounts of money. And generally those deals provided that we had an attempt to make, you know, pay-per-view content and big content. And we, you know, back in those days, there weren't three separate exclusive promotional sort of sides of the road. You know, now you have ESPN, you know, almost exclusively top rank. They are exclusively top rank. Mm-hmm. The top rank does deals with other people, but ESPN is top rank. PBC is Showtime and Fox, that's that's PB, you know, that's Heyman. And then you have Eddie Hearn and the zone and and these exclusive deals make it very difficult. The network wants the best product. Each of them wants the best product. They don't want to lose a big fight the fighter they built up to another competing service so it becomes far far more difficult than it was you know years ago back when a fighter might have a exclusive contract generally there were, there were there was room in those contracts for the big fights still to happen and generally they still happen and also back then hbo had a much more um even though showtime was starting to emerge hbo had a much more stronger position vis-a-vis showtime so that hbo if they wanted a big fight to happen, could really have, it was in a great position to make it happen, even if it involved Showtime talent. Because we were willing to work with Showtime, we could make a fight happen. So, you know, it was a different world. Right now, it's much more difficult mm-hmm. because, it, and it's not really the promoters as much as it is the relationship between the promoters and the platform. Right. If if you know if the NFL, if they view themselves as competing leagues, that's almost how, sort of how they view themselves. They. These exclusive contracts result in almost sort of the thought that you're in, a, you're in a competing league and you don't really want your talent to cross the street. And, and too often the talent doesn't cross the street. It happens, but it doesn't happen enough. It needs to happen more.
1: Boxing Hall of Fame with Lou DeBella as we wrap it up. Tell our listeners about your career in movies and television and producing. What was that like, considering your background in sports and what you've done, especially as a lawyer, when you got into the TV world and especially the movie world, what you loved about that business or what's frustrating about that business?
2: I mean, it's, it's incredibly frustrating, but I don't really handle it as a business. Um, to, to be honest, I, I really earn my living from the boxing stuff, and I'm, I'm the managing partner of two... A managing owner of of, of two uh, minor league baseball teams, the um, Montgomery Biscuits, of San mm-hmm. which are the, the Tampa Rays Double A team in Montgomery, Alabama, and the Richmond Flying Squirrels, which are the, the San Francisco Giants Double A team in mm-hmm. Richmond, Virginia. So, uh, like uh, that sort of the, the movie stuff, it's from love. Like I got to act in a Rocky movie and play myself in, in Rocky Balboa. I, I've been in a number of movies in, in small, tiny roles. I've, consultant on films. I produced a lot of films. I love documentaries. I produced a lot of documentaries and I've executive produced a lot of documentaries. Honestly, you don't get into the documentary world to make money. You get into it out of passion and a love for it. So I think the baseball stuff, the producing stuff, it's a nice balancing to boxing. And it's probably kept me sane because one thing boxing is, is one crazy world, man.
1: Like no I'm doubt ever, about it.
2: <laughs> ever a dull moment. And it's, it's, it's sort of like the wild, wild west.
1: Lou, last one What can the boxing media do better? I loved in your speech when you talked about How boxing at its best is its best As we talked about in your love of the game The media, has it progressed At a level that it did when the the scribes and the journalists who sat ringside were promoting the sport at the highest level, dating back to before Howard Cosell. And now we're in 2022. What can radio, podcast, television, documentaries do better to get boxing more mainstream, or does that matter? Because boxing is mainstream, and those who don't get it and aren't gravitating to it all the time are missing out.
2: Well, boxing's also, right now, a, a big continuum of things. You know, Jake Paul against Tommy Fury is not the same thing as Terence Crawford against Errol Spence, right. right? Now, I may I may watch both of them, right? But one of them is really, you know, right now different than the other and there's, you know, what it what, there, there's the celebrity and the boxing. Boxing will always be part of, of of the sports fabric of the world, period. And and of this country, period. And, you know, Jake Paul's a huge star. He's, you know, he you know, but but Tyson is a huge star, but what they do is right now not really the same things. Um, I, boxing will always be here. What the writers can do, I, look, right now there's very little boxing writing in, in major newspapers across the country. So yeah. they're a lot more reliant on journalists that are more like internet kind of stuff. And then there's also access is often limited by promoters if they don't like what the particular writer is saying. And then you have a lot of writers and Commentators that have contracts with one of the competing um, platform, platforms because they need to make a living. So there's a lot, like, I don't think there's a lot of evaluation of the sport. Why do we have stinky decisions? Not like, oh, yeah, decisions always stink. Well, it's very, not that hard to figure out why it is and why can't we fix it and why isn't anyone writing about it. So I think just I'd like to see more critical analysis of our sport by the people that cover it regularly.
1: Hey, Lou, there's a lot of people you take care of. you got big businesses. I wanted to make sure I congratulated you in person on the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And congratulations on that high honor and what it means to your legacy and what you have going in the future. I hope you look me up when you come to Vegas next time.
2: No, I'll, I'll do that. But thank you also, J.T. I want to thank you for something. Thank you for covering the sport all these years, for understanding – at our best, how good we are, and always giving us that fair shot when we deserved it. So thank you for being a friend of boxing, man.
1: Thanks, Lou. Take care. All the best. Congrats. Take care. That's Bye. Lou DeBella, Hall of Famer. Boxing Hall of Famer. They just had the International Boxing Hall of Fame. I follow it closely. Lou got in. I called the people behind the scenes to set up that interview. Very important interview for me because my life's been based on mentoring people when I can, but the mentors in my life, and Lou's one of them, when... Lou was the vice president of HBO Boxing. I covered every fight. They would fly me to New York, L.A., and I had all the access here in Vegas for 20 years. And for 12 or 13 of those years, Lou DiBella was the HBO sports guy, along with a lot of other big names, Rick Bernstein. We look at all the names that were involved in the sport back in the day, and... I can't tell you how many times I walked into a fight and went right to Lou DiBella in the front row and thanked him for the credential or the opportunity to be at the fight, and now he gets into the Hall of Fame with all of those individuals in that class. So I appreciate you listening to Lou. If you Google Lou Debella, D-I-B-E-L-L-A, you'll see how big of a monster he is in sports. I mean, the impact that he had on HBO, HBO After Dark, HBO documentaries, movies, Harvard grad. What he's doing now in baseball, I didn't know about the baseball background with him. Really cool guy and an interesting character, along with Don King and other promoters like Bob Arum, and I'm happy I was able to congratulate him here on the air. All right, let's go. We got Darren Millard at the bottom of the hour. We're going to talk to him on the Vegas Golden Knights, have a new head coach. Interesting. The other two coaches were pretty damn good, right? Peter DeBoer had a hell of a winning percentage. Gerard Gallant took the team to the cup final. And now all of a sudden there's a new coach here. Okay. The Cassidy era begins right now. And we're going to learn more about him with Darren Millard at the bottom of the hour. Also, if you have a prediction on the Warriors and the Celtics and how you're going to bet it, as Boston's a four-point favorite, I think that's going to get knocked down to three by tomorrow. We'll figure out what happens there. And more on my trip to Amsterdam. And what I liked, everyone's tweeting at me, what I like about Amsterdam. I liked, you know what? Let me just say that before we go back. What I liked about Amsterdam was how cool and mellow it was. You didn't see any problems on the street, no one trying to take your stuff bicycles everywhere. The first time I was ever in a place in my life where there were no cars, I mean a few, a handful, everybody's on a bicycle and you got to worry about the bicycles. They are coming. Fl- my wife stepped off a curb and I grabbed her arm and it was a bicycle coming by as <laughs> fast as I've ever seen a bike, but just gorgeous. Man, I just feel so mellow. And yeah, San Francisco, this is what San Francisco should be. Amsterdam. Everything that they do for fun in Amsterdam, they do in San Francisco, wink, wink. And San Francisco has the beauty of the ocean, the bay, everything right there, the Golden Gate Bridge. But what happened to my city by the bay? Because I just spent four day, five days, four nights in Amsterdam. I lived in San Francisco. I mean, they, they should send people out to Amsterdam to show San Francisco what it could be. So that's, that's me getting on my soapbox for San Francisco. And uh, I'll stop at that. Because nothing good's going to come out of that the rest of the way. And uh, Mick Jagger recovering from COVID. Thank God I didn't have to pay. I had to hook up for those tickets. They would have cost an arm and a leg. But hope Mick is okay. We can't afford. You know how many big names have COVID now? It's a big topic trending right now. So be careful. Do what you do. Been doing this for over two years during COVID on the radio. I'm done trying to tell you what I do or what you do. Just be safe. Also, tomorrow I have a Raider event at the stadium I'm emceeing. Uh, The draft luncheon, which is a big deal in the silver and black world. I'll be back on Friday. And then Friday's the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame. And we've had all the Hall of Famers who have come on, the new inductees, including DeMarco Murray, who's going to get in. Uh, That'll be Friday night over at the brand-new Dollar Loan Center, which I haven't been to yet. Looking forward to going over there to see some of the great people in this town or all at this event. So if you got a ticket, I don't know what the status is, if it's sold out or not, but the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame, they put on one of the great banquets I've ever been to. I put it up there with all the great ones I've either emceed or been a part of or paid for a ticket or sat in the back and watched. This is as good as it gets. So it'll be a good Friday night here in Vegas for that. When we come back, Darren Millard at the bottom of the hour, plus your phone calls at 702-365-9200. Raiders got a lot going on. A lot going on, but there's a lot of other news, including Deshaun Watson. We'll have that sound coming up on the other side. Also, live golf compared to the PGA Tour. A lot of things they got to hit on before we get out of here at the top of the hour before Q takes over. Right here on Raider Nation Radio, brought to you by our great friends at Remy Martin. Team Up for Excellence. The fact that, you know, everybody stepped up, Wiggs, JP, you know, Clay hit some big shots. Draymond found his, his, his life and his spirit and the way he impacts the game. Uh, we could withstand going 9 for 40 as a team and me 0 for 9 and still come away with the win. So obviously, uh, track record says, you know, shoot the ball better next game. And uh, looking forward to uh, that bounce back. That's Steph Curry. How do you miss that many shots and win? How does that happen? You're the Boston Celtics, you're in the NBA Finals. Wiggins and Curry don't make one three, zero threes, and they win, and they win by double digits. JT, back with you, back from Amsterdam, London, Manchester, and good old Liverpool. Good to be back here in Vegas. Missed the heat. Missed that 109, Bobby, which I'm used to, but we'll be back. Uh, I didn't miss the 114, 115. That's coming. Uh, perfect weather, probably, in San Francisco. Big Al on the Warriors side. What's happening, Big Al? Thanks for the call.
3: Oh, no. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. You know, you had said, how did the Warriors win when uh, Steph Curry and Andrew Wiggins go a collective 0 for 15? In, uh, in game five, well, they got 50 points in the paint, and they hadn't even come close to that or sniffed that um, throughout the entire series. I'm finding it, uh, two, two points. I find it amazing, uh, number one, that um, the Boston coach wants to change his rotation. That's not amazing, but he wants to take Robert Williams out of the starting lineup and then only substitute him in when Looney's in there. Um, and I look at that, and I'm like, Robert Williams has been your best player the entire series. He's changed the entire series defensively. He makes the Warriors kind of go astray. They, they're afraid to go to the paint when he's in. You know, when he's in there, when he's out, they feast on the paint. So I'm not necessarily quite sure why they're looking to be able to match up like that. But most importantly, and this is for all those out there who are listening who hate Draymond Green. Um, I think Draymond Green is, is, is a Hall of Famer, first ballot, absolutely no question about it. And with all the assists that he gets, as, you know, as the proverbial point forward, I would love to be able to give stats and figure out how many hockey assists he gets. Because he probably, if for every assist he gets, he probably gets another hockey assist. So if he gets six assists in a game, he probably already, you know, theoretically, he would have 12. He changes the entire game. Offensively and defensively, he's a, not just a good defensive player. He is an exceptional defensive player, and the way that he runs the defense and handles the offense and moves the ball around, creating opportunities for guys as long as they keep moving and stops and not stand in the corner and stare like other like other players around the league do, hoping to get a, a corner three. If you play mm-hmm. with him and you move, you're going to get the ball. Yep. And if the Warriors do that on uh, tomorrow night. And Draymond just keeps doing what he you know, what he normally does. Um, there won't be a Game 7.
1: Thanks a lot, Big. I appreciate the insight there, who he knows the stats and how they move the ball better than anybody. All right, so, yeah, I think you know, Draymond Green's going to get in the Hall of Fame because it's not the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is impossible to get into, or the NFL Hall of Fame. Draymond's going to get in because it's the NBA Hall of Fame. Excellent player. I never thought he was a Hall of Famer, but he's going to get his fourth ring, and that's basically a hall pass to get into that building. Seven zero two three six five ninety two hundred. Always great to talk to Darren Millard, host of the Vegas Golden Knights TV broadcast, also the VGK Insider Show here on our sister station, Fox Sports Radio. And Darren, good to talk to you. I hope you're doing well. We have a new coach, and you're going to be here to tell us all about it. How are you?
0: I'm looking forward to it. Uh, look forward to uh, interacting uh, with Bruce uh, as he arrives in Las Vegas. And uh, always great to chat with you. We haven't we haven't hung out in a while, buddy.
1: I just got back from Amsterdam, and I had a great time sitting out there drinking oh. cold beer on the canals. And all this. Did a, you <laughs> did you go to the Heineken Museum? I did. I did. And what a place! It was so incredible to go, and my wife went there. Like 30 years ago when she was backpacking through college and we went through it and they had all these lights. And let me tell you a quick funny part of that story. You know, at the end of the tour, you, you get some drinks and then they give you yep. as many beers as you want. And I've never seen so many young people working behind the bar singing. It was like a nightclub downstairs and everybody's drinking full giant beers and everyone's having the time of their life. There wasn't a problem in the world as I was drinking my Heineken in that beautiful building.
0: So the, the the time that I went there, you were allowed two beers per person. Yes, uh, you got those two tokens. <laughs> but what uh, we we talked to somebody who is leaving, and you're right, it turns into a nightclub at the end. Is it it is, doesn't it full on uh, party mode. So the, the person that we ran into as we were walking in said, "Hey, tip tip of uh, advice for you: anybody that you see that may not be like in the party <laughs> mood or might be a little bit older." make as many friends as you can as you walk through the museum, because when you get your tokens at the end, they'll just turn around because they know you, they'll just give you their tokens, and then you will have the greatest time. That's exactly what we did, and we got uh, a great night out of
1: it. What a great place it was. I can't wait to go back. Darren Millard's our guest. So with Cassidy, It's incredible. you know. Back in the day, 20, 30, 40 years ago, if you were a coach, you had the job, and you were going to keep the job. Now I always hear the term, if you're a hockey coach, don't buy a house rent, because you can even go to a Stanley Cup and win like Trotz did and then take the Islanders to the playoffs and be out of two jobs. It's tough to keep a job in the NHL. Cassidy had a lot of success with Boston, taking them to a cup final. What are some of the best attributes that you think will fit with the Golden Knights?
0: Well, I think he has uh, many different layers to him. Uh, if you're going to uh, talk about uh, a coach that holds his players accountable, uh, Butch is a guy that uh, and I call him Butch uh, is a guy that uh, that can do that and is, is uh, known for uh, coaching his players hard. He's also uh, well known for being very. Big, uh, good with his veterans and the way he handles uh, his, his top players like Bergeron and Marchand and mm-hmm. Pasternak uh, along the way. And uh, and if you want a guy that's flexible, uh, he broke up the perfection line last year uh, when he needed more depth uh, down the lineup and was able to roll with the punches with a, a goaltender that was trying to come back and two new goaltenders in and uh, coached through the uh, departure of Zidane O'Chara uh, along the way. And then to Carrasque. So uh, I, I, think that the range with, with Bruce Cassidy is one of his big, big strengths.
1: Darren Millard is our guest. So the obvious question for our audience here, why did Boston get rid of him? Uh,
0: because, uh, Boston, uh, is, I think going in a different direction. This, mm-hmm. this is purely, uh, speculation on, on my part, but, uh, they are at the near the end of the road of Patrice Bergeron, or could be at the end of the road. Uh, I don't know whether he's going to come back. Uh, only Bergeron knows that and hasn't made uh, his public announcement yet. Uh, they have a couple of big injuries uh, next uh, next year at the front part of the year, and they're going to be in a different spot. So I, I think this is the the time the uh, the window. Uh, closing on the Boston Bruins and they're going to tear it down and they're going to uh, reload and rebuild. And they thought that, uh, that, they would go in a different direction uh, with a coach that, uh, and, and you, you know all about this, uh, JV uh, coaches, when they reach a certain point, they are used to winning. They want to keep winning. So going through a rebuild is a tough sell to a coach Uh, Even if they're going along with it, they'll still be knocking on your door going, I need more, I need this, I need that. And uh, sometimes it's easier just to uh, turn the page and go with a new coach that's going to Going to ride that out, so uh, that's where I think the Boston Bruins are headed. It hasn't been public yet, but uh, mm-hmm. all, all the uh, the clues notes are there.
1: Darren Millard's our guest, host of the Vegas Golden Knights TV broadcast, also co-host of VGK Insiders right here on our sister station Fox Sports Radio. So this is a very interesting year for you as you work for the team. You're on the broadcast there, and you see the cap issues and who's going to come up, who are they have to sit, who's injured, who's coming back from an injury, how to get the chemistry going. And the team misses the playoffs. It's shocking to me because I thought this was a cup contender, a team over the last couple of years that should have been able to win one cup. But I'm not complaining because it's a brand new inaugural expansion team. So you can't have it both ways. Some teams it takes 30, 40, 50 years in between cups. How frustrating was it to watch this team knowing that they had so much uh, talent, Darren, and they couldn't put it all together? Well,
0: incredibly frustrating and uh, and disheartening, uh, especially at the start when uh, the injuries started piling up in the first week of the season. And you were looking around going, will, will this end? What can further uh, go wrong? And then you get to a certain point where you start to believe, okay, it's going to get better and we're going to be able to hit the ground running again. And it just happens again. And and that was the, the the biggest frustration was you never got out of that window of having to alter the, the lineup because of injury. And it hit every part of the lineup, uh, mm-hmm. forwards uh, at the start and then the, certainly the blue line and, and at the end uh, the goaltending. So uh, I, I'm with you. I, I thought this was a Stanley Cup contender at the start of last year, uh, easily the best team in the Pacific Division. And when I look at the Pacific Division right now, and, uh, all the different, uh, adjustments that, uh, teams are having to go through, especially, uh, Calgary and Edmonton, who made the final, uh, the, the decisions that they have to make on, on star players. I still think Vegas is the best team in the Pacific Division. It just has to be a healthy team, a team that, uh, that you can put that, uh, that top talent, uh, on the ice for. And it sounds like, uh, certainly with the encouragement of the Mark Stone, uh, procedure and then Jack Eichel for a full year, uh, I think that should be the place. But, uh, frustrating because you anticipate, the the logic is, it'll eventually fix itself, the injuries. But it never did. Bizarre. I've never seen it before.
1: Yeah, and for you to say that, you've been around the sport a long time. Darren Millard, as we wrap it up, a lot of people have never seen it before. I'm just a fan, as you know, behind the microphone. I've been a fan my whole life. I'm, I'm lucky to have this opportunity and platform. And I look at the fans here, and I don't want to say they're spoiled because these fans stepped up with huge money. We had one October and the tragedy in town and the fans stepped up and everyone around the world noticed. And these are diehard fans that show up long before the game starts and party long after the game. A lot of people are talking to me saying, hey, man, you know, some of these tickets I can get a little bit easier than two or three years ago. I wonder what it's going to be like in this town. This is not a fair weather fan town. I think they are great hockey fans here. But what are your expectations for these fans coming off the disappointment of last year, this offseason, and what the expectation should be?
0: Well, I think it's an, an easy sell to say that they still haven't had a bad year yeah. as a team, they had an injury-plagued, an awful season with uh, players out of the lineup uh, who weren't available. That's different than having a year that uh, that you really struggle in every aspect and you never find your place and you're not able to compete. They just weren't uh, able to to ice the, their top talent. So uh, I think objectively. Uh, With the the talent uh, available, they they should be, this roster, and certainly with the new coach, who's going to be uh, Bruce Cassidy as motivated as anybody, uh, given what just happened uh, with with the Boston Bruins and his track record. And these players uh, should be right on board with them, having uh, endured what they did last year and been part of the the first team that that missed the playoffs, no matter what the the reason is. uh, I I think everybody is in a situation where you're pointed towards the, the right direction.
1: Last one. Do you see a lot of changes when it comes to the roster? There are some big names here, and I'm not going to say yep. they underachieved because there were some guys that were hurt, and we touched on that. But you know, individuals who didn't live up to the hype when it came to stats, production, uh, goal scoring. Should we expect more change, or would you leave most of this roster alone and say we got a new head coach? Guys are going to be healthy. This is still one of the best rosters in hockey.
0: Yeah, outside of the salary cap uh, situations uh, that, uh, that are going to require some adjustments, uh, whether it's uh, players leaving or, or players uh, resigning, and uh, that's up to, to Kelly McCrimmon and his staff. Uh, I'm a big proponent, and I'm on record, uh, JT, that you run it back. I want to oh, see the nice. team that was there last year that I called the Stanley Cup contender, I want to see that team uh, go to work this year.
1: I agree with that. I think that's a really good way to look at this and for everybody to understand what's set up here in Vegas and what could happen with the new head coach, uh, Bruce Cassidy. Darren, good to talk to you again. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for coming on.
0: Send me a picture from the Heineken Museum (laughs) because I think that that. would take me back to uh, one of the great nights of my life.
1: Oh, wow. Sounds good. There he is, everybody. Darren Millard from the broadcast of VGK. Look, I'm just a fan of this hockey team. I love this hockey team. I really do. And for those who say, hey, man, are you a fan? Or are you?" A... I'm not a journalist. I'm a sports talk host. I watch sports live or on TV, and I talk about it. That's all I do. I'm not, I'm not looking to get a Pulitzer Prize here. I just want to get in here and do fast-paced radio, and we should get more Golden Knights fans calling in on this town so someday Vegas can become a real sports town, a sports radio town, which covers sports all the time, 24-7, 365.
0: What appeals to you about Live Golf that you weren't getting from the PGA Tour? There's an obvious um, incredible financial commitment, but more than that, there are other factors that with um, fewer tournaments, it allows me to have more balance in my life, it allows me to do things that are off the golf course.
1: Phil Mickelson, so this Live Golf is a big global topic, I wanted to share some opinions on that. As we are back on Raider Nation Radio, if you want to get through before the top of the hour, we can get you up 702-365-9200. Q coming up next. So I'm fascinated by what politics does to sports. Because I don't talk politics and sports unless politics invades sports. You know, something happens politically and it's a big sports topic, then you have to do that. That's my job. So the Live Golf Tour comes on and everybody's saying, oh, how, how could these golf golfers take Saudi money? Saudi money for the Saudis financing the hijackers on 9-11. Okay, direct, direct connection to that. I lost a fraternity brother at the top of Tanner Fitzgerald who died with four baby girls, two twins and two young daughters, three and five, and newborn twins. Had a deep, profound effect on my life, obviously. And everybody was affected by 9-11. The people who were affected the most by 9-11 are the families that lost loved ones. I'm not saying you weren't affected. You probably were. But if you're living in Toledo, Ohio, and you didn't know anybody in the World Trade Center, as an American, you're horrified. But the people who lost loved ones there have it worse. So now we're starting to hear Christine Brennan, who's a great journalist, and other journalists now peppering these golfers saying, how could you take that blood money from Saudi Arabia? Very important topic. Now, I look at my career two different ways. I earn money for my family. So I don't go die on a hill for some topic like that. I'm not going to get fired because I support Live Golf. No, not me. That ship has sailed. I want to keep the money coming in, keep my jobs coming in. I'm not going to go crazy on that. But I will tell you there's two sides to this story. Side number one is the United States is involved with a lot of Saudi business. A tremendous amount of Saudi business. You put gasoline in your car. Okay, when it comes to travel, when it comes to Fortune 500, you know how many companies, Fortune 500 companies do business with Saudi Arabia, which includes the presidents of these companies, the vice presidents, the contractors. You know how many Americans work in Saudi Arabia as contractors? They work on oil wells. They do something with security. Why? Because they're making money. No one calls them out. So all of a sudden a bunch of golfers want to play golf with the Saudi-backed tour because they want to make more money. And everybody's freaking out. So let me just clarify this. I said it on my show last night. I, JT, would never play on the Live Tour. I wouldn't because I don't like to connect the dots. But we have the NBA involved with China. Do you want to start comparing human rights violations with China and Saudi Arabia and then go to Venezuela and then go to other companies in Africa? And you want to go around and start saying... Okay, who's doing business there? Who's playing sports there? Are we going to compete again? What happens we show up in the World Cup, we're in the same group as Iran? Are we going to boycott the game because Iran's human rights violations and say, no, we've been known to boycott an Olympics? So if you want to go all in and not support a country that's involved with some political issue or human rights violations, amen. That's your prerogative and you do it. I would agree with you. I would not compete if I was a professional golfer with Live Golf. But I understand that these golfers are free agents. And if you can leave this country and fly to London and play in a tournament, because I was just in London and every billboard said live golf. When was the last time you drove through Summerlin or Henderson or drove to California and you saw a billboard that said PGA Tour? Maybe never? I mean, it, it, they are putting all their money behind this because they want to compete, compete financially with the PGA Tour. So, when Dustin Johnson gets 200 million, not 20 million, 200 million to play a couple of golf tournaments, you're nuts if you think he's going to turn it down. He's not because he wants the money for generational wealth. Now, can he go to sleep at night? Dustin Johnson is not the sharpest tool in the shed. I think he goes to bed at night with Paulina Gretzky and plays golf with Wayne Gretzky and has a bank account worth a couple hundred million bucks. That's how he sleeps. Phil Mickelson, on the other hand, is in a tough spot because Phil's entire career was built on the PGA Tour. That's his legacy. And he's basically leaving it for the money. He showed up at the US Open today and they gave him a round of applause. Some fans are going to heckle him, but I'm very interested on this topic because we choose to get we choose to get so irate and triggered over certain topics, certain riots, certain sports leagues, certain issues in society from police to inflation. To gas price. And we go crazy on individual topics. Why are we going crazy on this? This is sports. Do you really believe that this is going to change the future of golf? I don't know. But I understand why these players are chasing the money. Because they're not political. And there's some good golfers playing on the Live Tour. Sergio Garcia, Louis Oosthuizen, Charles Schwarzschel, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau. What's wrong with these guys? They're just athletes competing and making more money and trying to fit it around their schedule. So I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it, but I'm not going to criticize everyone. And when the NBA does this much business with China, okay, the amount of money that, that we're intimidated to, to get on China's ass about because we want to keep that NBA floodgate open with money, and we're sitting here ripping golfers, but we're not ripping the NBA. And what about international soccer and FIFA? And all these other law lo- the Olympics. Man, this is a slippery slope if you don't want to go down The NFL doesn't have to worry about this. No, the NFL isn't backed by the Saudis. But if it was, if there was an issue where there was money coming in, would they take it or not? Probably not, because we don't want to be divided in this country politically. We can't be divided any more than we are divided in America than June 15, 2022. We've never been this divided. It's not getting better. It's getting almost worse when it comes to sports and politics. So I'm not going to go die on that hill. And I don't watch Live Golf. I'm watching the U.S. Open this weekend. But I understand why these golfers aren't turning down $100 million. Would you turn down $100 million? I doubt it. And if you did, I'd give you a standing ovation if you had your principles that strong where you could walk away from that type of money. So, Bobby, it was good to be back. You would have loved Amsterdam. You would have loved Amsterdam because it's a free country. It's a free place. You walk around. The spirits are very high. Uh-huh. Uh, they have cafes. They have coffee shops. Uh-huh. Uh, they have unbelievable restaurants. You know that I'm into old bars. That's one of my fascinations. I love to go to bars that are really old, like McSorley's in New York. is 1800s. That's where Abraham Lincoln Went to have a beer after the Cooper Union address. So I was walking around Amsterdam, and a couple of people told me about this famous bar to go into. And I went into the bar, and I took a picture because I couldn't believe it. I asked the bartender if the if this was true. He said, you're in the oldest bar in this section of Europe, especially in Holland. 1619. The year 1619. And that's a year
3: before the Pilgrims went over to it,
1: it Basically, you would know that. I wouldn't. This was the same bar in this tiny, tiny, tiny building, which was incredible to have an ice-cold beverage and to be in a bar that people were in in the 1600s. And then, uh, very sombering, I went to Anne Frank's house. Wow. Yeah, no, I know. I saw I, the pictures. I mean, that was, you just climb, climb, climb climb on these ladders into the attic where Anne Frank lived, Mm -hmm. and the location is one of the most beautiful locations I've ever been. It's right on a canal. She wasn't in the ghetto. She wasn't eight blocks off the canal, and she couldn't look out the window. They never opened the window. They never opened up the shades for two years. And then finally, the United States and we invade Normandy to liberate Europe And two months after that and they feel like they're gonna get liberated in this house eventually. They hope every day as they're hiding and they can't move and they get caught Mm -hmm. as as we are coming to liberate that country. And to walk out of that building and to see all the people with tears and emotionally, you know, just spent after that, that was pretty incredible too. So really happy I went on that trip and I I actually read I read that book. But now, yeah, back in uh, high school, yeah, Everyone's really should. good book. It, it was really riveting to be there on that site and and to just have that experience on top of the other experiences that were going on. And the Cavern Club in Liverpool, where the Eagles got, uh, the, the excuse me, the Beatles got their start, was also pretty amazing. Thanks to our guests today, Lou DiBella, boxing Hall of Famer, Darren Millard from the Vegas Insider Show. We love that. He had a lot to say on the new head coach, who we could have on tomorrow. Uh, Vince Evans, former quarterback of the Raiders, and Kurt Heelan, who joined us from NBC Sports. The game is tomorrow night, so we'll have a fun time talking about that, maybe previewing it one more day. Thanks to all of our proud partners as we added a couple of new ones that we'll tell you about. Thanks to Steph McKenzie for voicing our rejoins. We love Steph McKenzie. Have a great day, everyone. Q's coming up next right here on the flagship of the Silver and Black. Great to be back in Vegas on Raider Nation Radio.